Lord, we just ask you to bless this time, help us see what you'd want us to help uh, to see, guide and lead, let your spirit anoint this time, and we just thank you in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Acts chapter 15. We just ended the first missionary journey, Paul and, si uh, Paul and Barnabas <laughs> have returned back to Antioch, uh, and we left them where it said that they had given the report of all that had happened. And the last part of the verse 14 said, and they abode there a long time with the disciples. So in verse, chapter 15, verse 1. And certain men which were come down from Judea taught the brethren and said, except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. And therefore, when therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dis dissension and dispute, disputations with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. And being brought on their, on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all the things that God had done with them. So I was going to stop there because this start, starts up the process. They get into the place, and then people, and it says certain men. We don't, just, we don't know who these, who these men are, but they came down from Judea, and remember, we keep talking about this. Anytime they leave the Jerusalem area, it's called going down because Jerusalem is high. Now, in America, we think of going down as it going south. But in Jerusalem, anything that leaves Jerusalem, anybody any, in Israel, anybody that leaves Jerusalem is going down, whether they're going northeast, south, or west, <laughs> they're going down. And we see that uh, phrase being there. And so these men come from Judea, and they teach Except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. All right? So we want to lay the groundwork, and we've talked about this several times. When the church started, it was considered a Jewish sect. It was, it was considered Jewish. And so these guys are following into the most important of all the Jewish rituals of circumcision. To be a Jew, you had to be circumcised in there in, for that. And so they are coming up and they're finding, they're coming to the church in Antioch, which is made up of a lot of Gentiles, and saying, oh, by the way, I know that you've been teaching that you could be saved without, you know, be saved just by turning to Jesus, but if you're not circumcised, you cannot be saved. And this goes all the way back to Genesis 17, verses 10 through 14. This is the symbol that was given to Abraham. God said, you and your entire house are to be circumcised, and this is the sign that you belong to me. And it has been followed by the Jews ever since. And this is a big deal for the Jewish people. This is a big deal. So you've got some guys that are very Jewish going to the church of Antioch and saying, well, you guys just can't be God's people unless you get circumcised. And they're going to make this case. And apparently everybody at least believes that they have come from the apostles in Jerusalem. You know, these guys have been sent. They, they come from Judea and they're giving this message. And this is something we have to be very careful of when we listen to teachers is, are they giving the word of God? Are they, do they have authority? And there are certain schools of thought, and I know, I know a man who's a pastor, and he believes that if he walks into a church, that whoever the pastor of that church is should give up, give up his pulpit for him because he just walked into the church. Uh, now, I know the man. I would not give him my pulpit. <laughs> Number one, just the arrogancy of that idea. Now, I'm willing to let other people come into my pulpit, but that is not, just because I walk into somebody's church as a pastor does not mean that I should be able to walk into their pulpit and preach. Uh, you know, so these guys are coming down and they're going, you know, hey, we, we came from Jerusalem. We, you know, we, we're here to talk to you and they're giving doctrines that are causing confusion. And you know, and this is something that is hard because they could go back to scripture. They go, you know, see, you know, Abraham was told to do this and Moses was told to do this and all the way down the line, 
we, they go, circumcision is what's important. And they're making a valid biblical case. But along with circumcision comes the fact that they go, not only circumcision, but once you've agreed to be circumcised, you then also had to agree to the 613 laws of the Old Testament as well. All right? So this is a big deal. This is binding people from the grace that was being taught. Jesus is the answer. He's the, he's the fulfillment of, the, of all the law, and he's the way to heaven to do all these works. And this is the battle that goes on constantly in the church, even to this day. You know, people go, well, I got saved. And they, then they'll turn to, Matt, uh, to James, will says, James will say, you know, you say that you have faith, prove your faith by, you know, show me your faith without your works, and I, I'll show you my, my faith by my works. And there's this battle going on because there is this fact that if we get saved, there should be works that are produced, or fruit that is produced, I guess is a better, better term. But then people will go too far the other direction and say it's all about works. You have to be able to show me all your works. And this has been the history of the church for the two millennia that's existed. It goes from great swings between almost extreme grace with no works <laughs> to almost extreme law and legalism with no grace. And this is the key that you have to be is somewhere in the center is where we need to be. It is all grace. And I'm, if I'm going to err, I want to err on the side of grace. So I'm going to be more toward grace than I am law. But by the same token, I understand there has to be something that is produced. If we are actually part of the vine, we are engrafted into Jesus Christ, we will produce fruit. And if there's no fruit, then I have to say, am I engrafted into the vine? And this is where Paul says, examine yourself to be sure that you're in the faith. And here they're, they're having this. And this is very interesting because verse 2 says, Paul and Barnabas has no small uh, dissension and dis disputations with them. So they're arguing with them. Why? Because they have just come back from a missions trip converting Jews. Uh, not Jews, but Gentiles. So they're, they're winning Gentiles all over the place. The Gentiles are being filled with the Holy Spirit. They're following God. They're, they're seeking after God. And none of them were being made to be circumcised. All right? And this is a big deal. Paul and Barnabas are saying, uh-uh, you guys, I don't know where you're getting your message, but this is not what God is asking for. And they're arguing back with him, and they're going through Scripture, and Paul and Paul and Barnabas are saying, but we've seen all these people getting saved. We've seen the power of God moving in them. And Paul and Barnabas are arguing with them. And you can almost picture that there is a problem in the church. You've got leaders arguing with each other. That is a bad place for a church to be at. <laughs> all right. Uh, it's bad enough when individuals within the churches start arguing with each other. But to have your leaders arguing with each other is a big deal. So the people decide on in the second, the last part of that verse that they were going to send Paul and Barnabas and certain other people to Jerusalem to talk directly with the disciples. All right? And this is a good move. These guys are, and it doesn't say it, but it, it almost indicates that these guys are saying, we're from Jerusalem. We've been, we've been deputized to come out here and give you this message. So wisely they send members of their own church to say let's go to Jerusalem let's go talk to the leaders of the of the of the church and say is this the message from you uh, and again remember this is the day before phones and and emails and everything they couldn't just email the disciples and say uh, can you give us a decision on these guys <laughs> uh, in our day we just called it did you actually send the, these guys down here to talk to us and it would have solved a whole lot of time and travel. Uh, but they did not have that, so they actually had to send them to go, to go see them. All right? And we've got to remember that uh, that was a day that if, if you traveled for 20 or 30 miles in a single day, you'd gone a long ways. So this trip from Antioch to Jerusalem, just to get there is going to take several weeks. And to get back is going to take several weeks. All right, so this is not a insignificant trip that they've been sent on uh, to get an answer.
from the right authorities uh, for them. And uh, it says in verse 3, And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. So basically what this is, if you study, study that area, they go by the coastal highway. Right? They're going to go straight down from Antioch, and if you look at the map I gave you, you see Phoenicia, and, and uh, Samaria is right underneath Phoenicia, and so they go straight down the coastal highway. It's not a missionary journey. It's not showing on the map. I'm just giving you where on the map we're at. They go straight, straight south uh, on, on what was called the coastal, coastal, coastal highway, even in that. And it's not, our, it's not 101 in, in California. <laughs> coastal highways have been called that ever, ever since they go along the coast. So um, this was a great trade route. So everywhere they're going, they're going to find all kinds of people to share with, and that is exactly what they do. These are true missionaries. <laughs> and I don't know if any of you have ever gone out to eat with a, a true evangelist or missionary or spent time with a true evangelist or missionary. It's an experience. Uh, I went to lunch one time with, a, with an evangelist. Uh, before we sat down, he had talked to everybody in line waiting to be seated. He talked to the host. He talked to the bus pro boy. He talked to the tables all around him. He talked to the waitresses that walked by, uh, you know, if I had talked, given the gospel message yeah, my, that many times, I'd have been thrown out of the restaurant, but he got away with it you know, because he was called to do that. That was his calling. He was good at it. Now, I'm, I can give the message. I can do that. But if I start preaching that much to people, I'm going to be uh, you know, getting people mad at me. Evangelists just have this way about them that you know, they can say the same exact things that I would have said and get away with it, whereas I can't. <laughs> You know, and not irritate people. This is Paul and Barnabas. Everywhere they're going, they're sharing the gospel. They're telling all these different churches and stuff that have been developed down there, God is ministering to Gentiles. God is calling the Gentiles. And it says there was great joy because the cities they were going through were Gentile cities. <laughs> all right? There were Jewish people in them, but they're going down, they're telling everybody, you know, which probably meant this trip is taking longer than it normally would have anyway because they're busy sharing the gospel with everybody that they're, they're getting to. And then it says, when they finally reached Jerusalem, they were received of the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all the things that God had done with them. So now they're telling them in Jerusalem about that first missionary trip all through Asia Minor, and probably including all my trip down to, to see you guys. Here's all the people that we've been ministering to. Verse 5, but there arose certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying that it is needful to be circumcised, to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So now we have a, another new feature being brought out here, not just circumcision, but the commandments. All right. Uh, and the apostles and elders came together for to consider the ma this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said to them, men and brethren, you know how a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knows the hearts, bear them witness, receiving them the Holy Spirit, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why tempt you God and put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. All right, so we have here Barnabas, Paul, the other people that were sent with them in Jerusalem giving the testimony, and they're in the church telling them what's going on. And then it says, but there arose of the sect of Pharisees which believed. All right, so here we have the indication that Pharisees are believing. Now, we want to remember this. I mean, we as Christians kind of think the Pharisees are awful, terrible people. All right? But the Pharisees were the, were the people that were considered to be the most righteous people in Jerusalem and in, in, in Israel. They kept the law. And they believed in keeping the law. They were, they were the strict traditionalists. 
You had to obey the laws. Now they got a bad reputation because many of them cheated in keeping the, keeping the rules and laws, but there were those that actually believed in keeping, keeping the rules. These were the ones that were spiritual. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in miracles. They believed in God still doing things. They were what we would in our day call the conservatives, the, the conservative Christians, the ones that still believe the Bible, still believe that God, God does miracles, but they were stuck in the laws of Moses. And they were, they were going in, yep, it's not a problem. We'll, we'll, we'll accept them, but they have got to be circumcised and obey all the laws of Moses, which the Jewish rabbis tell us there's 613 laws of Moses that need to be obeyed. Now, I have never actually counted them. Uh, I do know that there's a lot more laws than we normally think of. <laughs> But they were being very strict. They're going, well, it's fine. But what are they really saying? Jesus was not enough. And this is an issue we've got to be careful about. If somebody accepts Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and they truly mean it, they are saved. They don't have to produce all the, all the things that we want to expect, expect. They don't have to act a certain way. They don't have to be behaving a certain way. The thing we do know, again, though, is if you're engrafted into Jesus Christ, you're going to produce fruit. These Pharisees haven't, haven't produced fruit yet. <laughs> They're still stuck in the law. But this is the time when things are in flux with the church because the church is Jewish in its, in its roots. And this is one of the things we have to understand. When we read the scriptures, we have to understand where these guys were coming from. This is, not, this is not a great debate you know, on, in many ways because these guys are Jewish. And the Jews had a way of living. And they're expecting Jesus was a Jew. They didn't expect him to throw away all the rules. Now they understand that you can't get saved without Jesus, but they're also understanding that you have to prove that you're saved is what they're looking at. And the first proof they're saying is you've got to get circumcised. Because that's what good Jews do. They get, you, know, you want to convert to Judaism? You get circumcised. And this is the flux that's in the early church. The more the Gentiles come into the church, the bigger the problem gets to be. Because now the Jewish founders of the church are starting to get outnumbered. All right? They're starting to lose their, their, their influence. Because all these Gentiles are coming in and they're not living like Jews. <laughs> they're not even wanting to become Jews. They are going to become Christians. And, we, and at this point, they're not even called Christians. They're going to be called Christians later on in Antioch. And it was insult. They used it as an insult to call them Christians. Because the term means a Christ follower. You're nothing but, and it, and it was kind of, you are nothing but a bunch of little Christ followers. You know, which, to me, sounds like a wonderful thing to be accused of. But, and that's why they embraced it. They go, hey, we kind of like this term. Before that, they were called followers of the way. So that was what they were called, because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So they called them the followers of the way, or simply the way. And it was considered a Jewish sect, which, in historic terms, protected them. Rome had given the Jewish people special rights to be able to follow their religion because they had capitulated to Rome and said, we will, we will become your vassals, but we must have our religion. Rome normally did not allow people to practice their religion. They had, you know, completely. They had to accept the Roman gods, and, and in this case, the Jews would fight to the death over that. That was not something they would do. They would not call Caesar God. They would not accept any of the Roman gods. And so they capitulated and Rome gave them special dispensation in the Roman Empire so that they could have their religion. So Christianity got its feet under it by being under the umbrella of Judaism. And you know it's amazing how God works everything out. He put them in a time when there were roads over the entire known world. Literal roads, not just dirt roads, but literal roads with bridges and trade routes. And you could go from 
all the way from Spain, all the way to the mountains in, you know, south of China on Roman roads. <laughs> you could go all the way up into upper parts of Germany on Roman roads and down into the northern, northern part of Africa. God gave them the perfect time, at least in the ancient world, to be able to spread the gospel. They had, they had one language that everybody spoke. It happened to be Greek, not Latin, but, but there was one language that everybody spoke. Roads that everybody could go, and overall, peace. As long as you didn't go to the frontiers, you had peace. God picked the perfect time to bring Jesus into this world for the evangelism to be able to get started. And he brought him into a time when the Jews were able to go, go out and be protected. But here we have the first big problem. <laughs> and so they get there, and these Pharisees are saying, uh, hey guys, these guys must be circumcised and agree to follow the laws of Moses. They are going to go all through, because to be a Pharisee, you had to have memorized the first five books of the Bible and a good chunk of all the prophets. All right, these, were, these guys knew the Bible. Paul was a Pharisee. Maybe, you know, uh, and so now they're going to give them all the quotes. Here's, here's, what, here's what God said. They're going, to start in, they're going to start all the way back in Abraham and say this is the sign that God has given. They're going to go through each of his children, being, each of his children, grandchildren being being circumcised and being committed to the committed to the call they're going to go through Moses and go through all this they're going to go to jo, uh, Joshua in the promised land when they got they circ remember the first thing they did when uh, Israel crossed over the Jordan is they circumcised all the all the men that were in the army uh, they're going to go through all of this process of how God has used that symbol how he put rules upon people and say and give and give these rules they're making their case all right. Paul, on the other hand, is going to be making his case. He's a Pharisee. He can argue with them. He's, he's better trained than most of them because, remember, Paul is trained by Gamaliel, who is the number three Jewish teacher of all time, not just Paul's time, but of all time. So Paul is well trained as well. And Paul has got experience of watching God minister to Gentiles. So we have two very strong arguments going on in the church. And the poor disciples are having to become the referees. <laughs> you know, they had talked to Jesus. They had been with Jesus. One of the things they knew from Jesus' teaching is that Jesus never made any of these Roman centurions or anybody else get, get circumcised. All right? And Jesus converted many, many non-Jews non in his days as well. Not many, but several. And they're going, this has not been the case. You know, so they are now looking, and they're listening, and they're battled. This is one of the things that we have to do sometimes when we hear different ways of teaching and things. Sometimes we have to struggle with, God, what are the right answers? When I was a teenager, I bounced around churches you know, most of my life because my dad was in the Navy, and we were new kids everywhere we went and went to new churches all the time, and we didn't always stick to the same denomination. I have been in Baptist churches. I have been in Pentecostal churches. And as a teenager, it would be very strange because I would hear different doctrines and I'm going, God, this doesn't make any sense. This is what this other church says and this is what and this, is what this church says. And the very strange thing is, and if you've ever been in any kind of doctrinal battle, they will use the same exact scriptures with different interpretations. And I've, you know, and so several times I had to go, God, I don't understand. I need you to tell me what the... What, what's right here. The good news for us is we depend on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will teach us and give us the right answers. And this is not saying that we go on experience or anything, but we need to listen to God. Now, God gave me some answers when I was a teenager. The really great thing is when I went to Bible college and I learned how to study the Bible and get into deep study, I found out that the Holy Spirit knew what he was talking about. Quite amazing that God knew what he was talking about, and I, and now I could, but now I could prove it. And this is where we have to go as a study. We learn the scriptures, we take the Holy Spirit as our teacher, but we don't stop there. We have to be able to explain why we believe what we believe, why, and learn why what we believe is true. And that's very important. 
when we did the study, how to study the Bible class, if anybody remembers that, I don't remember if anybody was in this when I did it, but the very first, one of the very first rules we said was our greatest tool for study is the Holy Spirit. Prayer in the Holy Spirit. We get our Bible open, we pray. Now there's lots of tools, lots of other tools that we can use to now be able to really explain what we believe and why we believe it and study better. But the Holy Spirit is what makes that difference. And we've said this several times. Before somebody gets saved, they, they open up the Bible and, and it's just a bunch of words on paper that don't seem to mean anything. Once they get saved and the Holy Spirit indwells them, they start reading the Bible and all of a sudden those words are jumping off the pages and they understand what it means and it makes sense. Without the Holy Spirit, none of it makes sense. With the Holy Spirit, it comes alive. And this is why you know, I've said to many people, we are in a very interesting age to live in. We're looking at it, and when we look at the scriptures, we say, wow, God, you're bringing all these prophecies together. It, look, it looks like we're in the end days. Now, we may or may not be. All right? There have been many people who thought they've been at the end days. During World War I, World War II, the Civil War, the Revolutionary War, you know, uh, things were bad morally, and we were at war with the world. And people are going, well, we're at the end days. Well, we seem to be more at the end days than any other point in history that I can tell. We've got people asking, and this is the scary thing, we have people all over the place asking for a world leader to get us out of our problems. And we have, world go we have governor governments in various countries that are asking and seeking a leader to unify the world. That has never been asked for in, in, in my knowledge of history. I could be wrong, but I can't remember any place in history where the world has asked for a leader to stand up and lead them out of, this cri out of a crisis. We know that that's going to happen. The Bible tells us so. So it's an exciting time to live for us as Christians. And when Jesus said, when you see all these signs begin to be fulfilled, look up. Jesus is returning. He's going to return. We need to be ready for it. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to have a lot of trials and tribulations before that happens. But it is a point where we say, it's an exciting time to be living and saying, God, you're bringing things to fruition. And we look up and say, he's coming soon. He's coming soon. And he is, all, he is always our strength. No matter what happens to us, he is our strength and our, and our protection. And this is something we have to be able to understand. This dispute is going on, and the Pharisees are making their case. The apostles and the elders are trying to make a consideration of this. They're trying to come up with an answer for all of this. And then Peter stands up in this group. And he said, you know, there was much disputing, much conversations going on. And Peter rose up and says, Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made a choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of, God, of the gospel and believe. All right? So if you don't remember this story, this is Peter standing up and saying, remember, God told me to go to Cornelius. All right? Several chapters back in, in Acts. God told me to go to Cornelius, and he believed. And he goes even further than that, and in verse 8, And God, which knows the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Spirit, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. So Peter is going through this whole thing that I was sent to Cornelius. I preached the word of God to Cornelius. And then he goes, And they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began speaking in tongues. And he's going, he's coming back to them and saying, you know, remember this because they gave him a hard time because he was the first one to go speak to a Gentile after Jesus. And they called him on the carpet to say, why did you go to a Gentile? And this is the disciples doing, the, the other disciples, and they're going, why did you do this? And he re reiterated the dream, remember the dream he was praying on the roof and the sheet came down and God said, take kill and he goes no I've never killed anything that's unclean and God said don't call you know after doing it three times God says don't call what I you know what I declare clean unclean 
And then he was sent to see Cornelius and he spent time teaching Cornelius and his whole house full of Romans <laughs> to follow God. And then he came back and they called him on the carpet saying, you know, what, what do you think you were doing? And, you know, and he gave them back that whole testimony. Now he's reminding them. And he's also reminding them one very important thing. He says, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. He's reminding them that God did not say make them get circumcised. Did not make them become Jews when he baptized them in the Holy Spirit and filled them with the Holy Spirit. He goes, they're just like us. It was by faith. By faith. And this is so important when we think about this is that God wants to make it so simple to be saved. We complicate it so often. Now, it is just a simple state of belief and faith in Jesus. Jesus paid the entire debt. He's not asking us to do anything to earn salvation at all. And Paul says it in Ephesians, For by grace are you saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. This goes all the way back to this decision-making. Paul is... Paul is making his gospel during this period of time. You know, uh, the understanding the gospel. In Hebrews, we're told to work out our, our salvation with fear and trembling. Now, that does not mean there's another way to heaven, you know, depending on how I think. But it does mean that God is going to work out my sanctification. How do I walk with him? Salvation is by grace, period. I finally recognize that I am a sinner. I repent of my sins. I turn my entire life over to God. And now I now get to walk with him. And that's where things get very interesting, where we get to work out our salvation, work out our sanctification. And that is where Paul was going to later on in Galatians, uh, in Corinthians, tell them, you know, hey, you've got a brother who can eat, eat, eat the meat of the idol, you know, from the idol market, no problem. You know, that's fine. If you've got another one who can't, that's fine too. You know, the one who can eat realizes it's just a stone that they put, you know, a stone or, or gold that they, they killed, the, killed the animal in front of. They have no problem with it. The other one has a problem with it. So be it. And this is why it's very important for us to understand every Christian is going to have certain things they can do and, and, and can't do on the, and it probably won't match your, your fellow brother or sister. There are gray areas on, whether, on things that we can do. Now, there are certain things that are, no, that are not, not gray. Do not worship idols. Do not commit fornication. Do not commit adultery. Do not, do not lie. Do not steal. Do not murder. You know, there are certain things that are very clear in the scriptures. They are very strong. Thou shalt not. There are a lot of things, though, that are, are the gray area. You know, should somebody drink? Well, I'm not going to drink. I think it's a terrible example. I think it's bad, and I know my personality. I couldn't drink and, and get away with it because my personality would have me being a drunk. All right? Uh, but there is no scripture in the Bible that says, thou shalt not drink. Now, there are there is a ver several verses that say, be not drunk. Now, there's a fine line. Most people can't drink and stop and not go into the point of being drunk. You know, or over the long period of time, it starts to take over their life. But there's nothing wrong necessarily in drinking. Now, I don't think it's a good thing to do. I think it's a very uh, bad thing to spend your money on and a bad way to try to live your life. But if they're not convicted of it, it's not a problem. I don't smoke. I can't afford it. I don't know how people can afford to smoke. But, you know, but there is, again, no verse in the Bible that says you shall not smoke. Now, there are a lot of people who will take both drinking and smoking and they'll go, well, your body's a temple of God and try to hammer people on saying, well, see, you're, you're polluting. All right, I understand that verse. I understand that that's probably how I would take it, but that's not a verse you can use directly to tell people not to do some of these things. So we need to be careful that we're not judging one another for our freedom or lack of freedom. Because sometimes the older Christian realizes there's freedom. They've dealt with things. They've worked things out. But their freedom can harm the new, new believer as well. Because the new believer is all excited. They've got to turn everything over to God 
And then they see and then they start judging the, the believer who's been around a while and says, well, I can do these things. We have to be careful, and this is what Paul says. I have to give up some of my liberty sometimes because it might hurt somebody else. You know, in Paul's direct thing, he goes, you have no problem eating, eating the meat sold at the, at the temple because you know that it's just a stone that they were, they were being sacrificed to, but it bothers your brother, don't eat. <laughs> and we've got to be sensitive to other people because there are certain things we shouldn't do just because it can hurt somebody else. And we need to be able to walk in this, and this is part of what they're going in. And, and Peter's saying, you know, God blessed them. He filled them with the Holy Spirit, and he did not make them become Jews. <laughs> and he's reminding them. He's reminding the other disciples. We've already talked this, we've already talked this problem out. Uh, and they're thinking, well, that was you, Peter. <laughs> you, you, that was you, but we have, a, we have an entire church. We don't have just one family out there that's converted. We have an entire church and, and a whole other country that's starting to not become Jews in this. And you know that they're thinking our power is being dwindled. One of the hardest things in a church is as it grows and it expands, the people who were the leaders and the ones that pretty much had to say start getting other people helping out. And this starts out, usually churches start really small. There's one or two families that kind of run the whole church. And then it grows and other people come in. And the, and the family starts thinking, oh, well, we don't have as much authority. We're not, we're not the ones that are starting everything. But that's a step that happens everywhere along the line. Because every time this church grows and expands, the next generation says, uh, there's a lot more people in here. We don't have as much, we don't have as much authority or as much say. This is what the growth cycle is going on right now. Uh, we're losing our Jewishness of our, of our group. And this is something we have to understand because a lot of times people, the, the, the uneducated people will say, well, the disciples were trying to start a new religion. They were never trying to start a new religion. They were Jews. They had no idea of ever not being Jew. They were following the Messiah. The Messiah was the Jewish leader. He was going to start a kingdom making Israel the center of everything. From their prospect, they're looking at their entire thought processes are being challenged again. They were challenged when Jesus went on the cross and died. They were following the Messiah. Before Jesus died, they were fully expecting that Jesus was going to rise up, lead Israel into victory, throw Rome out of the outside and take over all the, all the known world. And because they were his chief believers and followers, they were going to be the dukes and the, and the earls and the, and the governors of area. They were going to be in charge. They were going to be the right-hand man to the king. And he died. And really shook their world. Now he resurrected and put them in charge of expanding the kingdom. They're still thinking in Jewish terms. We're going to get everybody following the Messiah. He's going to come back. We're going to be able to start, the, start this world. And yeah, now, we're, now we're going to have to share it with other, other Jewish believers. But we're, 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 going to be the, we're still going to be the, 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 big, the big cheese. <laughs> you know, second and third big cheeses, you know, right behind Jesus. And now they're seeing non-Jewish believers becoming part of the church. And this is, this is shocking to their core. This is shocking to their core because it goes against everything they believe. And we don't really fully understand it with, without it. But here they are. They're starting to see, God, you have a different plan. Now, would they see the day that we see where there is more, gent you, know, you know, so few Jewish believers? No, they never, they never dreamed of that day, but they also, they, but they also saw the potential that was going on, that all these non-Jews are coming into the, into the church. You know, Jerusalem had tens of thousands of Jewish believers, but outside the Jews were rejecting the message of Christ and, they were be, and, the, and the Gentiles were accepting. The, the whole face of Christianity is changing from a Jewish religion to 
a religion based upon the Messiah. And never were they out there trying to purposely <laughs> take it, and they never even wanted to separate from it. Remember, the only, the only Bible they had up at this point is what we call the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. So when they preached, they had to give the Law and the Prophets. And the, the Gospel message is in the Old Testament. You can find the Gospel message you know, just shy of Jesus dying and resurrecting. But you see that we're all sinners. And it's, it's real easy for us to see. We see the need of repentance. We see the need of the sacrifice and the shedding of blood. Everything about the gospel message is in the Old Testament. There are hundreds of verses that talk about that the Gentiles were going to be followers of God. And this is something that was hard because the, the, the disciples and the Jewish believers are having a hard time. Gentiles are following God without becoming Jews. Even though the Bible talked all through, you know, all through the Old Testament that the Gentiles were going to follow God. He would be a light to the world. They were going to be called. They're going to follow him. They're going to be seeking him. In the Pentateuch, when we read about the sacrifices and the setting up of the tabernacle, God says, these are the rules for you and anybody that wants to follow me. So that he was already telling them back then that the Gentiles were to be called to worship. By Jesus' day, the Jews had gone so restrictive between their, that they would not allow people to even into the, beyond the court of the, of the women to worship God unless they were Jews. Now, they'd let, they'd let anybody become a Jew. That wasn't so much of a big problem. That You could proselyte and become a Jew. And for the man, that meant that you got circumcised, you got baptized, and you agreed to follow the, the rules of Judaism, and then you could go in. Now, the proselytes were second-class Jewish citizens. <laughs> the natural-born Jew looked down on the proselyte because they weren't, they weren't Abraham's seed directly. Now, I would have thought that they would be happy that people wanted to become Jews, but that wasn't the way they looked at it. This is the mentality we have going on right now. The, the, the disciples are like, okay, they're, they're becoming part of our group, but they're not part of our group because they haven't gotten circumcised. They haven't agreed to become Jews, but yet God is blessing them and, 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 and filling them with the Holy Spirit. I'm trying to draw the picture because it's hard for us to grab hold of how earth-shattering this, this would be to them. Nothing is making sense to them. It is not the way that they have been taught things should work. And yet they're seeing God move. We do this all the time where we go, God, I think this is what you're going to do. This is how you work. And then we watch God do something totally different than we would ever expect. We need to be flexible enough to say, God, is it really you? And look at the scriptures. And this is where they're at right now. Peter gets up and says, God told me to go speak to the Gentiles. You guys remember this. And he didn't make them get, become Jew, Jewish to, to get blessed. Then he goes, verse 10, now he makes an accusation to them. Now, therefore, why tempt you God? Why are you trying God? Why are you testing God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Now, this is kind of an interesting statement. He goes, you're wanting to make them obey the laws of Moses, and we can't do it either. This is quite a statement. And this is a wise statement. Are the laws of God of no value? The answer is no. That is not true. They are of great value. If we obey God's laws, then we have great benefit. There's great reward for being obedient to his laws, and there are great consequences for being disobedient. Will keeping the law get me into heaven? Absolutely not, because Jesus said, if you offend in any point of the law, you have violated the whole law. The law has one major purpose in our life, and it is to show us that we need God. Because we cannot keep the law. There is not a person alive who has not put somebody before God and worshipped worship something above God. Now, we don't necessarily worship idols directly, but how many of us have put our work, our family, our hobby, 
our sports, some sin in our life that we just cannot get victory over and we put it above God. All of us have broken, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery, you shall have no other idols before me at some point in our life. Uh, How many of us have used God's name in vain? Yeah, it's easy in today's world. You know, you can't even watch a television show or a movie hardly without hearing God's name used in vain. And the sad thing is, there are many Christian movies that use God's name in vain because they use it lightly. To, for somebody to say, oh my God, and they're not praying to God, is using God's name in, in, in vain, very lightly. Using a euphemism, euphemism, gosh darn it, or oh my gosh. You know, everybody knows that when you say that word, you're actually meaning God, but you're not going to use it. So you're using God's name in vain in those, in those circumstances. We've got a generation of people using text messages that will put OMG on there. And they're not praying to God. They're using his name lightly. Everybody has lied at some point in their life. And if they tell you they haven't lied, they're lying. You know, uh, you know, and we go right down the list. All down, right down to Ten Commandments, not even the 613 commandments. We can't even keep the Ten Commandments. You know, uh, most everybody has stolen something in their lifetime, even if it's something small. When you go to Jesus' example, and he goes, if you even think about having done these things, <laughs> you've, broken, you've broken the laws. You know, uh, which really puts us into trouble. You know, because most of us have thought about, God, if I could just get away with it, I'd, I'd do that person in, I'd hide their body someplace where nobody would ever find it. You know, uh, or even worse, adultery or fornication in, in our minds you know, is so easy to do. This is what Peter's saying. We can't even obey the laws and you want us to take our laws and apply them and put them under the laws that we can't obey. What a statement that he's making and how wise a statement that he's making. You know, this is definitely from the Holy Spirit from him. You know, how can we put them under rules that we can't even obey? And Peter's probably thinking about all the different things he's violated as he's making this statement and helping them remember. And then verse 11, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Now this is kind of an interesting thought process when you read what he, when you listen about what he said. We're saved by the grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. We shall be saved even as they. Now he's turning this around on the way that they would expect it. He goes, we think we're getting saved by keeping the laws and being obedient to God, but we're saved by grace even like the Gentiles have been saved. Put this in their minds. This is, this is a shocking statement that he's making to them. He's saying the Gentiles are better off than we are. Uh, they're already saved and they're not keeping the laws. We need to get like them under the grace of Jesus. And this is something that is not well understood by people. The grace of Jesus. When we think about grace, we throw the word grace around so often that we, not really, that we don't even hardly ever think about grace. The definition in the Greek uh, is the merciful kindness of God upon a soul. God's kindness. A simple definition for us is that we receive all the good that God has to give us by grace. Acronym that I've given us at various times is God's riches at Christ's expense. Now that's a powerful statement when you really think that one through and I ask you to think about that one. God's riches. God is very rich. He has plenty for us at Christ's expense. He paid for it. And even that, as deep as that statement is, is a simplistic view of grace. But it is God giving us everything. 
all the things that we get, all the blessings, all the peace that passes understanding, all the fruit of the Spirit, all, the, all that he gives us is a gift of grace that we cannot earn. The whole idea of grace, he turns, by grace, he turns our soul to God. We get saved and immediately he turns us toward God. We take that first step and say, I, I'm, I'm a sinner, I, I don't deserve this, and God then turns, our, turns us totally around. He makes us a new creation that wants to seek after God. Now, we might have a small desire to seek after God, but the Holy Spirit can turn to where we want to truly seek him and follow him. He gives, he keeps us. We are so sinful that there is no way that we could, could keep after God without the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling us and God's grace that keeps us. He strengthens us. Yeah. And this is the beauty. When we have a sin that we have a problem with, and we recognize finally that it is a sin, and we turn and say, God, I need your help. And we truly, totally surrender. And that's the hardest part, surrendering. He will give us the power and the strength to be victorious. And you know what? I keep hearing, and every time I talk about surrender, people keep going, well, how do you surrender to God? The answer is, you do it. You just surrender. The funny thing is, and I've had the same battle, don't get me wrong, I've had to battle this whole thing of surrendering to God. When I finally decide to surrender to God, I usually am ready to kick myself all over the place for having not surrendered sooner. God, why did I take so long to surrender? I'm getting better. I don't usually argue with God as long as I used to. Uh, my longest that I can remember ever not surrendering to him was six years. <laughs> don't try that. It's miserable to fight God for six years. <laughs> it's much better just to learn to say, God, I surrender. I give up. You know, and so how do you surrender? My example is real simple. We're sitting in this room and we have the police outside saying, come out with your hands up. We have a choice in front of us, don't we? We can say, no, nope, I'm going to fight you. I'm not coming out. They will eventually force us out, whether they just starve us out or fire tear gas in or whatever it is, they will force you out. How much do you want God to force you to surrender? Or we can open up the door, <laughs> raise our hands and say, I surrender. Most of the time, because ours isn't so clear-cut, God says, I want you to surrender, and we're going, uh-uh, I'm, I'm just sitting in this building, I'm not surrendering. And God sends in the assault forces, he sends in the tear gas, he'll send in whatever it takes to make us surrender. But the good news is, when we do surrender, he gives us the strength to, to not desire it. He, and, and this is all by grace. He increases our faith. He increases our desire to love people. He increases our desire to forgive others by grace. You know, and grace produces fruit. The beauty of all of this is that grace is a work of God in our life. I can do nothing to deserve anything that he does. It's all him doing the work. All it takes is my surrender and saying, God, I am yours. Do with me as you want. Give me the grace. And it is so beautiful. I can pile laws. I can pile rules on my life and on others. And I will never have the strength to get, get success. Because that just produces works. Grace is where, what changes lives. And over my lifetime, I've watched more people's lives changed by God's grace. Just giving them grace and letting God work on them. If I go after them and I attack them and I you know, you know, mistreat them because they're not following all the rules I think they should follow, all it does is drive people further from God in the long run. Because you get just as Peter said, I want to put a yoke on them, on all the things that, that, that I can't obey. Because what do we usually expect people to do? We expect them to do the same things that we struggle with. 
Whatever it is I'm having trouble with, they should have to, they should have, to have trouble. They should be struggling just as bad as me. So I'm going to put the rules on them that they have to do all the things that I have a hard time doing because I'm not going to be miserable alone. <laughs> I'm going to make sure everybody's having the same misery that I'm having. I'm going to put a big yoke on them. I'm going to make them miserable. Grace frees us from those yokes. Jesus says, I will set you free. He's looking to break all the yokes of bondage on us. And then he gives us the strength to be victorious. This is the greatest thing. You want a victorious life with Christ? Surrender to him and live in grace. Live in grace and say, God, thank you. It's all you. And this is the beauty of grace. And this is what, this is what Peter's saying. They got saved by grace. They're not, they're not bound by all these laws that you wanted to put them under. And I don't know if you've ever seen that little statement in that, when, you know, these guys, you know, that we can be saved even as they were. Because they're still Jews. They're thinking all about all the traditions they have to keep. All the things that they have to do to try to please God. All the rules they have to obey to please God. And Peter is actually saying, they've got it easy. They just got saved by the Holy Spirit and they're not, they're not worried about all these rules. We have to get over the fact that we have to keep rules. Sometimes when somebody is raised up in a church, they have a harder time following God and accepting others than those who get saved later in life. Because when you're raised up in a Christian life, you get bound up by the rules. Can't do this, can't do that, got to do this, got to do that. Got to follow all these rules, got to do these things, got to have this way. Got, you know, something as simple as how do you pray to God? You know, uh, there are many people that have been raised up in churches that can't pray to God unless they're praying the Lord's Prayer or, or any other number of or prayers. Uh, there are denominations that have prayer books. You know, you want to pray and ask for this? Here's your, here's your prayer. <laughs> you know, this is how I pray for forgiveness. This is how I pray for strength. This is how I pray for, for somebody to be, you know, they've got prayer books for anything, any prayer that you want to do. Those prayers, if you're saying them and you really mean them, that's fine. The problem is, God tells us not to be repetitive. Not to be like the heathen that keep repeating words just to be repeating words. He wants us to have a conversation with him. Much easier for the Gentiles to come in and say a conversation. They didn't have a whole bunch of prayers and all these. They just, God, I'm here. <laughs> you know, I, I need your help, God. Uh, you know, and this is what God is saying. Are we ready to just step back and say simple prayers? How do we pray to him? We just talk to him. We just talk to him. We don't need long flowery prayers. We don't need to show off our long prayers. I've been in churches where these guys would, would pray for five, ten minutes. You know, oh, mighty heavenly father, oh, great, great creator of the universe, we come before you humbly. You know, and by the time you got done, it's like, okay, what did you ask God for? <laughs> now, I'm not opposed to, you know, we talk about in our prayer guide, we need to confess our sins before God. We need to give him adoration before God. We need to be thankful for, for what he's done before, long before we start asking him for stuff. Yeah, well, there, there's that point to you that needs to be made, but also the idea of thanking him and adoring him. Our prayers need to be more than just time before God in, in always speaking. Our confession is important, but also adoring him and, and giving him thanks. And some of that may just be, instead of what we would call prayer, I might start singing some choruses. I might sing some songs to God with God. Because some of the choruses we sing are very powerful songs that lift him up and adore him. So part of our prayer could literally be praise and worship time with him and being thankful for, him, for all that he's done. And then we get to our, here's my request, God. But Peter is making a very interesting statement. We need to get saved even as they did. Forget about all these laws that we're trying to keep. 
Because for the Jew, getting saved was not an easy thing. It, it was easy to accept the gift, but it was hard to, for them to get past the fact that it was all about doing. And what do I do in the traditions that we're following? And Peter made a very interesting statement. They have it easy. You know, we need to get saved just like they did. By grace, not working about all these, all these issues. The Jews, the Jews always had to work through this whole thing of, it's not my own righteousness. You know, uh, the Jews really believed that they were special. God had chosen them. They were special. Many of them believed they were going to heaven just because they were a Jew. All Gentiles were going to hell just because they were Gentiles in their mindset. And Peter's saying, basically, let's put it in plain English, get over yourselves. <laughs> get over yourselves. They, 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 God is accepting them. We have to be careful that we don't ever get to that place where somehow we think we are better than anybody else just because we've gotten saved. That somehow I've been starting to get sanctified enough that I'm better than everybody else because God has worked out a lot of my sins. And that's why I say, God, God will take care of on that. If you think you're better than anybody else, just beware because God's going to show you how sinful you are. And he's going to go, ah, right here, no, this one, this one, this one, and oh, by the way, here's a whole bunch you haven't even thought about. Just to make sure that we understand that we're not self-righteous. The Pharisees who started out as self-righteous people, you know, we're better than you because we've been keeping our rules, are saying you've got to become like us. And Peter's saying, we can't put that yoke on them. And by the way, they're better off than we are. <laughs> because they don't know all these rules and self-righteousness that you're trying to make them get bound under so that they can be failures. The worst thing you can do in your life is start saying, here's my set of rules I've got to live by. And if they're really a challenging set of rules, you set yourself up for failure. Because you're not going to be able to keep the rules. And the church has done this over and over throughout the years. You know, back in the 50s, there was this whole bunch of rules. You know, you didn't go to movies, you didn't play cards, you didn't, you, you didn't smoke, you didn't drink. You, you, you had a whole lot of long rules. And, I didn't, and you didn't go out with people that do the, you know, you know that, that break these things. You had this whole long set of rules and everybody broke the rules when nobody else was looking because they knew they couldn't keep these rules because they weren't the God's rules. They were just the rules of the church. We want to be careful. We as humans like rules. Just tell me. We have entire self-help sections in the, in the bookstore, in the library. 10 easy steps to, you know, 15 easy steps, 20 easy steps to, you know, and we like those. Just give me the steps I have to go to get success and I'm going to be happy. And God says, there aren't any other than surrender to him. And surrender to him looks different in every single situation. So we need to really start understanding grace. We really need to start living grace. And more importantly, we have to learn to give grace to everybody else. And this is something that we will spend the rest of our lives learning how to do. Learning to accept grace and learning to give grace. And when you think, you know, when you think you're giving enough grace and you think you understand grace, God will show you that you don't understand grace at all. This is why I say, we'll start with the simple one. God's riches at Christ's expense. And that's not simple. <laughs> but that's the start. You think you begin to understand that, then God will show you all the other some of the other five points that I brought out in grace that is so much deeper than anything we'll ever understand. And even when we think we understand it, God will show us that we don't even understand grace at all. He will keep putting people in that need grace. And the problem is, when we think we know how to give grace, he'll give us somebody that needs more grace than we know how to give. Saying, I want you to learn how to give grace. God, that person doesn't deserve grace, absolutely. If they deserved grace, they wouldn't need grace. Grace is a free gift. I need God's grace. I will never deserve, any, deserve anything that God gives me. Nobody in this room deserves grace. Nobody that we're going to encounter deserves grace, because if they did, it wouldn't be grace. It would be something they earned. 
We need God's grace, and we need it more than we ever realize. And God is so wonderful that he starts out right where we're at. Wherever we're at, he starts there and says, I will give you what you can accept, and then I will start teaching you what you can't accept. And he keeps teaching us more and more about grace with every, every, every year, every time we walk with him, every environment that he puts us through, every person that we will meet will need more and more grace and challenge us. So our goal for today is to live in that grace and to understand God's grace. Understand that this was a big deal for the church. And we're going to continue working on this. This is, this is known in history as the Council of Jerusalem. It's one of the first councils of the church to make a decision on how the church is going to operate. And they get it wrong for the most part. They get some of it right, but they get some of it wrong. And we'll talk more about that over the next week or two. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us. God, make our hearts receptive to your grace. Give us the opportunity to give grace in greater and greater degrees because as we accept your grace, we should learn to follow through with grace. And we just thank you and bless you and ask you to help us in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com. Or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona. 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.